you know that Keeley Companies is all about fostering the world-class culture through their incredible cultural pillars. Well, it was time to add a seventh cultural pillar, Keeley Green. Guided by the mission to raise the sustainability standards by which they design, build, operate, and live, Keeley Green is dedicated to using a holistic approach to leave a positive impact on our environment, create a future that is sustainable for generations to come. In the words of Rusty Keeley, we are just getting started. You can learn more about that just getting started mentality and all the work they do by visiting my friends at Keeley Companies online at keeleycompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. There's an old saying that there are two certainties in life. The first one, taxes. Anyone know what the second one is? That's right, my friends. We all have a destination eventually with death. So learning from that experience not only teaches us what is to come, but maybe even more importantly, teaches us how to live prepared for it each day. Not afraid of it, but ready for it. As a hospice chaplain, Carrie Egan quickly realized that she was granted an invaluable chance to witness firsthand what she called the spiritual work of dying. The work of finding or making meaning of one's life, of learning near the end of your life what ultimately matters most during that life. In her years spent in hospices, Carrie has listened to patients reflect with feelings of hope and regret, shame and pride, mystery and revelation, and secrets held for far too long. Most of all, though, she listened as her patients talked about love. Love for their children, love for their partners, love for their family, love for their friends. Love they didn't know how to offer, and yet love they gave unconditionally near the end. Love they sometimes belatedly learn to grant not only others, but here's the key piece, but also themselves. My friends, in this conversation, it's not about dying. I need you to know that on the front side of a conversation with a hospice chaplain, this conversation is not about dying. This conversation you're about to hear is about living boldly, loving fiercely, and dreaming extraordinarily. Why wait, though, till the end to begin living passionately today? Join us right now as Carrie shares how to find courage in the face of fear, strength to make amends, and how to profoundly, compassionately, and incredibly lead forward the one life you have. So my friends, family, brothers and sisters, without further ado, let me introduce you to a, one of my authors who I love and a friend now. Her name is Carrie Egan. Carrie, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thank you. If someone says to you, Carrie Egan, what do you do professionally? What would you say? I would say I'm a chaplain. And then I would want to explain what that is. For a long time, I worked as a hospice chaplain, which meant that I worked with people who were dying. And now I started writing and I never set out to be a writer ever, ever. My first book started as my master's thesis. When I think about it, like my entire life, like writing and being a chaplain have always gone together. 
but writing wasn't necessarily what I would have chosen, but it definitely seems to be what I'm doing now. I, I miss being a chaplain for a long time. Being a chaplain, meaning being a person who sits with another person and helps them find meaning in their lives, right? That's it. It helps them dig deep in whatever tools they have in their spiritual toolbox. It might be a lot of tools and it might be hardly any and find meaning in the events of your life, especially as you face death, because no one, literally no one, I've probably talked to hundreds of people who were dying. No one at the end of their life has ever said, you know, nothing really happened. Like it was really easy. My life was just so easy the whole time. Nothing really happened. I have nothing to talk to you about. Like they might choose not to talk to me. That's fine. But no one's ever said, I have nothing to talk about. I, and I, I feel like a lot of people don't know that. Like they look around at other people and they think everyone else's life is like, seems like perfect. Like seems like they've got it together. But like that to me was like the greatest gift of being a hospice chaplain was realizing like, holy cow, no one got through life without a struggle. And that didn't depress me. That made me feel good. And I've heard you say, and I've also read in your books about the struggles that you faced growing up. And I wonder to what degree your father's illness and he, he being sick so frequently is actually what informed you to want to become a chaplain in the first place. Yeah, I think so. I think that's actually really insightful. But of course, you're a chaplain too, so you would get that. I don't think I knew that at the time. I, at the time when I was in divinity school, I thought I wanted to get a PhD. I was Catholic at the time. I'm Episcopalian now, uh, but I grew up Catholic. So I had, no, I had no interest in being a priest then, and I still don't. I just found it really fascinating. Like, why do people believe what they believe? You know, there's like billions of people in this world and they all believe something vaguely different. Like even two people within the same religion, two people within the same family, right? They believe these wildly different things. And maybe 10% of what people believe has to do with what their religion taught them. And the other 90%, who knows where it came from? They don't even know sometimes where it came from. And sometimes those beliefs are really helpful and sometimes they're really not helpful. So I thought I wanted to get a PhD in religion because I thought that was the only way to study that. I thought that was the only way to ask that question was to get like a PhD in it and sort of study it from an academic viewpoint. And then after my dad died, he died my first year of divinity school, but he'd been sick my whole life. He had type one diabetes and he died when he was 51 and just multiple system failure. And it was a pretty awful death, frankly. He was not on hospice. You know, he was so young and I think nobody wanted to give up or felt, felt like hospice was giving up. I think certainly for them, I think they felt that way in the 90s. When he died, I hiked the Camino de Santiago a year later for no really good reason, except that it well, seemed like a good idea. We're going to pump the brakes there. So your, your dad dies. He had a d difficult death, physically, yes. psychologically, the way yes. he took out things on your siblings, your mom. Like It was not a good death. It was painful on Correct. all fronts. Correct. And we had no real help as a family, none. And so you, from what you've shared in the past, you never really grieved this thing. Apparently you never shed a tear, but you're looking for meaning in this and meaning in your own life. I had told myself that this was a good thing. This was a blessing and he wasn't in pain anymore and he wasn't suffering anymore and that this was good. And that all of that's true, but I sort of thought that meant I shouldn't grieve his loss. And so I was really in a lot, of, I mean, we're talking like really in denial about this. And I went on the Camino and which is, sort of, which is what for our listeners who have no idea. Oh, okay. So the Camino is a pilgrimage trail in Spain and it's at least a thousand years old. People have been walking this little trail 
through northern Spain to the cathedral of Santiago de Compostela, where supposedly the remains of St. James are buried. He died in Jerusalem. His parishioners, they put, for unknown reasons, put his body in a stone boat, which they then pushed into the Mediterranean, which then went all the way through the Mediterranean, out into the Atlantic and landed in Spain on the coast. His body was then somehow carried a couple dozen miles inland, was not found for another thousand years, and then a peasant saw like a star shining above his body and found the remains of St. James. So that's, the, that's the myth, that's the story. And so people have been traveling to Santiago because that's where the remains of St. James are for a thousand years. That's not why I did it. I just did it because it sounded really great and like it was something I needed to do. And I think that's why a lot of people hike the Camino de Santiago. I'm not sure most people, maybe some people believe that they're really going to venerate the remains, the relics of St. James, but it's not why I did it. But it's an incredible community. It's an incredible hike. It's an incredible community that has sprung up around there. You can still do it today. Um, the little towns along the way, people who were born in those little towns very often would tell you they understood that that was their vocation in life, mm -hmm. right? That that's why they were born in that little town was to take care of pilgrims. That, that's what they did. It was, it's, it's a lovely thing. So I did that. I came back. I decided I wanted to do an internship as a chaplain at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. And that's when I realized, holy cow, again, at the time, right? I don't really think this is about my dad. Kierkegaard has this great quote, you know, something like life can only be lived moving forward, but can only be understood looking back. And this, I understand this now, but at the time I really didn't, John, like, I'm not kidding when I say I had no idea this was about my dad. I really felt like, wow, you don't have to study in books. Why do people believe what they believe? You can actually, there's a job, there's a job where you can sit down and talk to them and find out from them. Why do they believe what they believe? Of course, I was searching, right? I was trying to figure out what I believed. I was trying to figure out why my dad had sort of died the way he did. And, but I wasn't aware at all at the time. And that's okay, right? Like for a lot of us, like we're, we're doing things, we're on a spiritual journey, our whole lives are a spiritual journey. And you don't necessarily know why you're doing the things you're doing at the time you're doing them. But in mm. retrospect, that's that meaning making process, right? I'm gonna, I'm gonna walk you back a little bit farther, back to the way, back to El Camino, just for a moment, because your journey, your fumbling pathway began with this quote from 1038. They wrote it a thousand years ago. Right. And what was true then is true now. And, and yeah. here it is. Be for the Lord a defense, an emergency, a harbor for the shipwrecked, a refuge in the journey, shade in the heat, light in the darkness, staff on a slippery slope, joy amidst suffering, consolation and sadness, safety and adversity, caution and prosperity, so that these your servants under your leadership may arrive where they are going and then return unharmed. And this is a prayer from a thousand years ago that you began your journey with on the way. Yeah. Talk I actually about, wanted to name that first book. I wanted to name it Shade in the Heat. I'm Mark glad you brought that up because the shade in the heat is in one of the chapters, what you were looking for. It gets apparently pretty hot in Spain in the summertime. <laughs> and you were looking for a little shade in the heat and you track it down and you recognize you've taken, it's a great metaphor, but it was also lived out through your life. You realize you took a wrong turn and yeah. the shade that you were looking for is not yours. And you find yourself in a wheat field. What happens there? Well, so anybody who's done the Camino is going to know exactly what I'm talking about. Anybody who maybe is from Spain, if there's any Spanish listeners, they'll know what I'm talking about. Like in Northern Spain, in the middle of summer, it is just rolling wheat fields as far as the eye can see. And it is hot. I mean, the sun is just so hot. On parts of that Camino, the Meseta, there is no shade 
there's just no shade. And I loved that prayer because it makes God so tangible, you know, like be for them, Lord, shade in the heat, you know, not just sort of like an abstract idea, but like these little blessings, right? Little, little moments of comfort that keep you going, right? Because there are times in your life where in anybody's life, not just mine, not just yours, but but like I said, no one at the end of their lives says, wow, nothing happened. I have nothing to tell you about, right? Nobody has ever said that. And there are times in everyone's life where it doesn't feel like there's any comfort, right? It doesn't. There's, there are times in everyone's life where there, there is no comfort. And sometimes being a chaplain, you're really aware of that. Like you're sitting there and you wish you could be comfort and you know you're not. And at that, those points, all you can be is like presence. All you can be is like, well, there's no comfort, but you're not alone, right? I mean, and sometimes that, that's, the, maybe sometimes that's the beginning of comfort and sometimes it's still not, right? Sometimes it's still not enough. So I just loved the visceral quality of that, that sometimes, right? Sometimes that's the blessing. Sometimes that's what you need is like shade in the heat. Sometimes it's as simple as that. You know, I think a lot of times we have a very, sometimes a romanticized view of God. We have sort of a very distant view of God and and just like the whole, the litany of things that God can be in that prayer for people who are suffering is, um, it just really spoke to me then. It still, sp- it speaks to me now. So, so yeah, I was in a, I was in a wheat field and I was finally sort of confronting my own grief because there's nothing to do. There was no cell phones back then. Someone told me that people who hike the Camino now bring their cell phones. I, I hope people don't do that because I think what was a big part of like the experience was there was no getting away from yourself, yes. right? There's no getting away from yourself at some point. You're just walking down a sandy road in the middle of a wheat field, right? Mm. There's literally no hiding from yourself. And that grief hit me hard. I had a lot of regrets. I was young when my dad was sick and died. I had a lot of anger. I had so much anger at my dad, which, you know, now as a 50-year-old woman, I understand my anger, but oh, how I wish I hadn't had it. Mm. He was so sick and I was too close to be able to see that. I wanted him to be like a dad. I wanted him to be, you know, a strong father and he was sick. And instead of having compassion, I had anger about that. And I'm sad about that. I'm really sad about that. And I sort of had to come to grips with that. Like the first time I really had to face that was on the Camino. So for me, that experience on the Camino was experience of a lot of anger, a lot of anger at God, at my dad, at myself. So that that's like shade in the heat, like was quite literal. But I think for me, it was also like in that fire of anger, like I needed that too, like something to just douse that, that heat of anger. Mm. So you come back, heat is burning you forward. You're moving forward into your life, still looking for clarity, still certainly looking for healing, but also seeking an opportunity of of being shade for someone else who might be struggling. You step into chaplaincy. What is chaplaincy? As I understand it, and a lot of people might disagree with me, so just I'm not in any way the final word on this. I want to be clear about that. My understanding of chaplaincy is a position in which You choose to work with people who want to work with you. That's an important part, right? The choice has to be the other person's choice. You work with people who are seeking understanding in their lives. And sometimes that understanding has to do with God. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes that understanding has to do with coming to grips with 
why they believe what they believe. Sometimes people don't want to interrogate their beliefs, but you are choosing to enter into a relationship. And I think it's very important that it's relational. You are choosing to enter into a relationship for however long that lasts in which you are a tool that the other person can use to come to understand the purpose and meaning in their lives a little bit better. Mm. So for me, I understand what's happening in those relationships as being part of the work of God. I understand myself as being a tool of the Holy Spirit, which to me is sort of God in action in the world, but not all people do. And I was saying before, you know, I, I worked for a long time as a hospice chaplain. I think of myself now as a writing chaplain. I work with a lot of other writers now, um, helping them write their books. So different places have chaplains, right? What do these chaplains do? Well, it depends on the scenario in which they find themselves, right? Because they're meeting the needs of whoever comes to them to find meaning and purpose mm. and peace, maybe even in their lives. And that can look really different. That looks really different in whatever situation you find yourself. But I love doing it. I love doing it mainly because, again, I did not choose virtue like my son thinks I did. And like you said, maybe I did. I have been searching for it myself. My whole life, John, my whole life, I have been, I've had some really strange things happen to me. And I know you have too, right? I have spent a lot of my life feeling on the outs. I don't know what other way to describe it. And so I have sort of spent a lot of my life trying to figure out like, gosh, I have, I've gone through sort of these strange things. I'm assuming you've read Henry Nowen's The Wounded Healer. Yes, of course. A lot of folks that come into that kind of work, that kind of ministry come in also very wounded and seeking themselves. Yeah. So there's a book by Henry Nowen and it's called Discernment. In it, he has like a little quote. I don't remember if it's from a letter or something that he wrote to a friend. He's really upset in this letter and he writes something and he's Henry Nowen, who if, if you've read Henry Nowen, you know, he's like kind of like a hero to a lot of chaplains out there. He's just a beautiful writer with beautiful ideas. And he writes in this letter, he goes, how is it possible that I am nearing 60 years old and yet again, in the midst of another spiritual crisis. How is it possible that I am like, I still keep going through all these spiritual crises. And I was like, yes, I'm so happy to hear that Henry. I'm sad you're suffering, Henry, but I'm like so happy that you are also suffering because <laughs> it makes me feel not so alone. Like not like, oh, I should have had it figured out by now. Cause he was someone, he was certainly someone who spent his life wrestling with demons and trying to make meaning of it, trying to understand it. And, and now one writes in a, in a tone where you every page you feel sorry for him. And then you flip the page to read more, to read more. So there's something about his incredible authenticity around struggle and yeah. his heart for faith and others yeah. that is yeah. so attractive and so universally applicable. So, okay, let, let's come back now to your story. And it, frequently in society these days, when it's hot, we try to build a tent or an air conditioner or bring people water. Your role as a chaplain, though, taught you that there's power and powerlessness yeah. in just being with people. Everybody else, in particular, we'll go to hospice for a moment, in particular with hospice, they're doing something. They're taking temperatures or drawing blood or bringing in a chart. Mm -hmm. And then you walk into the room, just hang and you just sit with. Talk about that role and why it matters. I think it matters because most people need someone like that, especially when you're going through a hard time. 
yeah, sometimes you need someone to bring you antibiotics and you need someone to bring you the paperwork that will help you transfer to a nursing home. And sometimes you need, you need that stuff. And sometimes you, you just need someone who is not expecting anything of you, mm. right? Like sometimes you just need to not have to give someone anything or get something from anyone or just in some ways, like, it's really hard sometimes as a chaplain. And sometimes it's like, listen, there were, I can't tell you the number of times I was like, I should have been a nurse. <laughs> no, I'm serious. Like I hundred percent wished I was a nurse, right? Because if I was a nurse, I could at least do something. You know, I think there's a lot of that, that human desire when you see suffering to do something. And as a chaplain, it's like kind of, in some ways a really hard discipline because the whole point is you are not going to do something except be with that person. And you, and it's not simply being with that person. It's being with that person with the faith and the knowledge and the compassion, knowing they can get through this because they don't necessarily know it. I was one time with a family and, you know, different people, even within the Christian background, different people pray differently. I live in South Carolina now. I'm, like I said, I grew up Roman Catholic. I go to Episcopal church now, but lots and lots of people, especially here in South Carolina are evangelical or Pentecostal or, and their style of prayer is so different. And I love it. And I remember standing with a family once and we were standing and holding hands and it's, it's like a very spontaneous sort of prayer. And I remember this woman said, God, be strong. And she said, we know you are strong. Be strong because I, and she got really, she's like, because I am not strong. And it was kind of a moment for me. What I loved about being a chaplain, right? Is I like learned every day, every day you learn something new. And I had this realization that sometimes that's what you need to be as a chaplain. You need to just be strong because sometimes people aren't strong. And to be the person who doesn't want anything, who doesn't give anything, who doesn't just as someone you can like fall apart with for as long as you want to fall apart. And the chaplain so often can just be that, that steady presence that's not going to fall apart. Sometimes that's really powerful to just know that you can fall apart and this person isn't going to judge you for it. And they're not going to try to fix you. They're just going to sit there and let it happen because as the chaplain, you know, it's okay to fall apart sometimes. There's sometimes too much of an emphasis on sort of emoting with someone mm -hmm. and not enough emphasis on the idea that sometimes someone doesn't need you to feel with them. They need someone to be strong with them so they can do the work of falling apart, right? You hear this when people are bereaved all the time that, you know, at the funeral, they end up comforting everybody else all the time Exhausting work yes one by one they comfort those in line to comfort them correct and it's a real burden on the the person who's grieving right is that the people who come up to line in front of them are weeping i'm so sorry he was such a good person i'm so sorry and so the widow ends up being like it's okay thank you for coming it's okay when it should be the opposite right so i think sometimes the chaplain attempts to be whatever tool you need her to be to make meaning in your life at that time. And sometimes the chaplain reminds you of your faith tradition. 
and the message of your faith tradition. Sometimes the chaplain, you can talk about the books you've read or the music you've listened to. Sometimes I, I had one patient, this was actually when I first started out at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and he was really young and he um, was like in his thirties and he was a math professor and he was dying and he was furious to be, you know, a 33 year old genius dying of cancer. And I remember his tool for making meaning was math. His way of understanding it was, you know, I don't understand why this is happening to me and my family, but I know that no matter what happens on this world, math exists. Like the rules of mathematics, they exist whether or not you believe in them. And he found so much comfort and power and meaning in purpose in the beauty of math. And so that's what the chaplain is. The chaplain is the person you can fall apart with, the person you can be angry with, the person, the person you can tell your secrets to, the person, whatever you need in that moment. They don't need, they're not going to give you anything. They don't need anything from you. If you want to kick them out, you can kick them out. You've said in the past and written about it, the flip side of regret is hope. And I want to talk about both those briefly, but beginning with regret, I think all of us live with regret to one degree or another, but when we're dying, it's frequently magnified. What, What have you learned about regret working with those who are dying? There's as many regrets as there are lives, which is to say billions. A regret shows you what you wish was different. Mm. That's what it is. So if you regret something, it's because you wish it had been different or you wish it was different right now. Yes, regrets are very painful. But if you take them seriously, while you're still alive, you have a chance, right? You have a chance. So, you know, even if you say, oh, well, no, I don't. I regret me. I regret. I regret being angry at my dad. That's a regret of mine. I could say, well, there's no, there's no fixing that. It's, he's dead. He's gone. He's been gone how many years now? 25 years. But that's, that's not even true, right? I can still, re- I can regret my lack of maturity in my early 20s. But if I just am like, oh, well, I regret that, then what a waste, right? If I can instead say, well, gosh, I really regret that. And how can I change now? How can I change now with the people I interact with now? You still can have the regret, but now the regret is coupled with a hope, right? Now the regret is coupled with a hope for change that you can change for the future. If you let your regrets, right? That's why I worry sometimes about those like top five regrets of the dying. Like, yeah, a lot of people do regret those things, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be your regret. You need to look at like, what do you regret now in your life while you're still alive? And if you say to yourself, you know, I regret, I never went to school to study X, Y, and Z. Well, the regret's not going to go away. So while you have time, maybe, maybe you can study that now. You know, I regret I wasn't more loving with my father. Well, so what can I do now about it? Well, I can talk to my dad who I think still exists on some plane. And if he doesn't, then no harm, no foul. I'm just talking to the air. That's fine, right? And I can change my behavior with the rest of my family. When my family does something that makes me really mad, I can acknowledge it, take a step back and be like, why is this making me mad? And figure out a different response moving forward. So if you just sort of pretend you have no regrets or you just like, you know, say, oh, regrets are something that we should we should sort of banish and only focus on the positive, you're really missing a huge tool, right? You're missing like a huge tool for happiness. And listen, I believe in God. So I believe there's like a whole God thing going on there. 
right? I believe that like what brings us happiness is actually divine, but no, you don't have to. Not everybody does. And I, I, that would, I would want people listening to this. I don't want them to be like, ah, she has nothing helpful to say. I don't believe in God. Like, that's okay. That really is like all of this, I think still applies, even if you don't believe in God that, you know, find the things that bring you a deep sense of joy and meaning and purpose and take those seriously. Take your regrets seriously. Okay. What do you wish you had done different Then do it now while you still have time? So what, what you said right there, I'm sure people have shared with you as they're laying in their bed nearing the end of their life, profound regrets. And as you look back on them, are you able to say, do it now? I would never say do it now. I would ask them questions and I would repeat back to them what they said. And I would remind them of other things they've said. And I would hope that they frankly would come to that realization themselves, right? Because if someone is dying in bed, someone's really, really sick and they feel awful. And you say, oh, you have these regrets. Well, pull yourself together, man, and go do something good in the world. They'd be like, what are you talking about? I can't even get out of this chair. It needs to come from within them, right? It needs to come. I can't tell someone, go do it now. I need them to come to a place where they were like, I can do something now. How do you help you're someone get there? Well, again, you're a tool, right? You're a tool in their toolbox. I don't know how it happens. It feels like this. It almost feels like electricity in the room. Like, you know, it's coming. You know, have you felt it? You, I know you felt it, right? And they're talking about something and they're talking. And if you can just like hold the line, like don't butt in. Just hold that uncomfortable, like electricity in the air. And then all of a sudden they'll be like, I'm going to call my son. I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. You can't say, hey, you should call your son. Then they're going to be like, oh, what's the point? It has to come from them. So what you're going to do is like create this sacred space, create this sacred space and time. So you just have to learn to like be the tool. Ask the questions. It helps that I'm really curious. I'm really cool. curious again, not because I'm virtuous or I'm trying to be shade in the heat, but because like, I like want to fix my own life. <laughs> so I ask really good questions. And then in the process, because I want to know, and in the process of asking those good questions, they'll come to their own solutions. My solution's always wrong. I'd love you to share the story of one patient, one friend that you worked with near the end of their life, and whether you want to give the specific regret, and then ultimately how they made amends. But I'd, I'd love to hear a, a story of abundant life that they finally grabbed onto near the end of their journey. I have this wonderful patient. His name is Jim. On his first visit, um, the nurse had said, he really wants to see you because he has a spiritual emergency. And that's actually really common in the hospital. Like a spiritual emergency, a pastoral emergency is very common in the hospital. Like someone wakes up after a stroke and half their body is paralyzed. Someone just got a devastating diagnosis. Someone is in the emergency room and their child has died. I mean, true full-on pastoral emergencies happen in the hospital a lot, all the time. They don't usually happen that much in hospice, right? Because usually by the time you're on hospice, the emergency aspect, the panic aspect, spiritually speaking, has passed. So to have a spiritual emergency in hospice is pretty unusual. So my supervisor was like, yeah, he says it's an emergency. He needs to see you ASAP. And I was like, okay. So I reorganize my day and I go out to see Jim. And he says, I have a message from the Holy Spirit. And I have to get this message out to thousands of people. Thousands of people need to hear this message from the Holy Spirit. But I can't even get out of my, my chair, right? I'm end stage liver cancer. I can't, even, I can't even lift my head some days. Like how am I supposed to get a message out to thousands of people from the Holy Spirit? 
And I said, well, how do you know you have a message from the Holy Spirit? He goes, well, because it's happened before, like my whole life. And it just so happened that that morning I got a phone call from this lady and she says, I'm a producer at PBS, Religion and Ethics News Weekly. And I read this article that you wrote about what do people who are dying talk about with the chaplain? And I, we've never done a piece on hospice chaplaincy. And I'm just calling to see, ask you some questions and see if there's even a story there. And I said, she said, do you have time? And I said, listen, I'm, yeah, I have 10 minutes. I'm making the kids sandwiches you know, before school and whatever. And I answer her questions and, and she goes, Carrie, I just gotta tell you, I think you're fantastic. And I swear to God, John, I like folded in a second. She didn't even have to try that hard to butter me up. I was like, oh, thank you. Thank you so much. She knew she had me like immediately. She goes, Carrie, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to come up there with a TV crew and I'm going to film you with your patients. And I was like, oh, no, 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 we can't do that. And she was like, why not? And I said, I can, I can think of 10 things off the top of my head. She goes, what are they? And I said, number one, HIPAA. She goes, people can sign a release. And I said, number two, my boss will never go for it. And she goes, you never asked your boss. And I said, number three. And, I, and I'm like, she had an answer for everything. I finally said, listen, I don't have any patients who want to be on TV. And she goes, how do you know you haven't asked them? And I said, oh, that's just it. I'm not going to ask them because they're dying, right? They're dying and it's not fair. It's not a fair question for me, the chaplain, to go in and be like, hey, would you mind being on TV with me? I'm not, I would never ask them. I said, unless... Someone said to me of their own free accord, I have a spiritual need to be on television before I die. It's never going to happen. And listen to me, no one has a spiritual need to be on TV. So then I go to work that morning and there's Jim Burgo, who's like, I have a message to get out to thousands of people from my armchair. How can I get the message out? And I was like, do you want to be on TV? And so he went on TV and he when we showed up for the visit, he was really, really sick. So we did the interview and he could barely, he could barely talk and he could barely move, right? I mean, he'd, he'd had this terrible episode. He was so weak. He was freezing cold. And I was really worried about it because this is crazy. But the fact is I had never asked him what the message was. I just figured he'd get the message out because he was very, very articulate and wanted to talk and talked a lot. I visited him a lot. He had a lot on his heart and mind and chest to get off. And now we have this one and only visit and it like goes, I think so badly. So I go the next day just to kind of like follow up. And I was like, Hey, how did you think it went yesterday? And he was like, and now he's fine. Cause people who are dying of liver cancer, like they have these episodes, it just wipes them out. But then it's gone 24 hours later. He was back to his old self I said, how did it go? And he was like, Oh, it's great. It's great. And I said, good, good. I said, um, are you happy with how it went? And he was like, Oh yeah. I said, okay, good. And inside my head, I'm like, how? It went so badly. And I said, do you feel like you got the message out? And he was like, oh yeah, yeah, of course I got the message out. And I was like, okay, well, what was the message? And he looked at me and he goes, Carrie, the message was you. You were the message. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, the message is just that you and Patty and Erica and all the nurses and the social workers and Elaine. You know, the message is that you can be so sick that you can't do anything. And there are people who still love you enough that they'll show up at your house and take care of you, right? That's the message, right? The message is that there's so much love in the world that the love is stronger than the sickness. Oh my God, what a moment, right? Yeah.
and then he died a couple days later and he died before it was ever shown on TV, but it was shown on TV. You can, you can still find that clip from Jim. A couple years later, I'd moved to South Carolina on living had come out the book and Elaine, his wife sent me a message on Facebook. It wasn't even a message. It was uh, like a comment on my author page. Carrie was a wonderful chaplain and I will always remember her. I was so happy to see her comment because uh, I tell people this all the time. Like if you have ever been really sick and you really loved your nurse or your aide or your chaplain or your social worker, like you really loved them and you wonder if they love you back, the answer is yes. Yes, they, they did love you. They do love you. And professionally, they might not be able to say that and they might not be able to act on that because there's really important professional boundaries that need to be maintained for all sorts of reasons. But if you've ever wondered, like, did my nurse love me how much I loved her? Like, absolutely. Yes, she did. She did. So when I got this message from Elaine, oh my God, I was so happy. It was like seven years later and I messaged back right away. And I was like, Elaine, it's Carrie. I'm so happy to hear from you. And and she said, can you, can you talk on the phone? And I was like, yes, of course I can. So we talked to her on the phone and we're talking about how she's been and how I've been and how I moved and what she's been up to. And, and then she's, she gets to the, the TV show and she goes, ah, she goes, I have no idea why he insisted on doing that. And I said, well, he had to get the message out. And she goes, what message? And I said, you know, the message from the Holy Spirit. And she goes, Carrie, I have no idea what you're talking about. And now I'm like kind of nervous because I realize I've messed up. I've said something maybe I shouldn't have said because I didn't know it was a secret. And I said, Jim really wanted to be on TV because he felt he had a message from the Holy Spirit that he had to get out. And she laughed. She wasn't mad at all. She started laughing. And she's like, oh, that sounds like him. Of course he had a message from the Holy Spirit. He always had messages from the Holy Spirit. And she said, but what was the message? It's like one of my favorite moments in my life, actually. When I got to say you, you were the message. The message was that you could be so sick and you could be dying and the world could think you're no good to anybody anymore, but that there's still so much love in the world that people will take care of you and that the love is stronger than the sickness and the love is stronger than the death. You were the message, Elaine. He wanted the world to see that in you. She got really quiet and she said, you know, Carrie, Jim told you a lot of things at the end of his life. He had a lot to talk about. And I never begrudged that. Like I never begrudged the time you and he spent together with the door closed because I knew he had a lot, he had a lot to talk about. She said, but I really wish he had told me that. She said, I wish he had told me that the love was stronger than death because for a long time, I wasn't sure after he died. You know, I talked about how sometimes there's no comfort. And these two people were like, the love of each other's lives, like madly in love still at the end of their lives. And she said for a long time, like, I didn't know that. I didn't feel that. I didn't feel that love after he died. I wish he had told me that. So I'm really glad you told it to me. I'm really glad you told me. Thank you for sharing Jim's story and Elaine's story and your story with our community, with our family. And we wrap up everyone's story with seven questions. Take a big swig of coffee. Question number one, Ms. Carrie Egan, is what's been the most influential or the most impactful book you've ever read? 
but here it goes. I'm just going to follow my gut because I've learned to do that. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe in fifth grade, and I didn't read it. Mrs. Egray read it out loud to our class. Why? Why that book? Because it was the first time I can remember someone, an adult, writing a book, like a magical book that I loved so much, but someone confirming this sense that I had, that there was hope in the world Mm. in a way that, you know, you go to church and, you know, hope and mercy and forgiveness. And it's, it's, it's not real. At least to me, it wasn't real as a child, but somehow the line, the witch in the wardrobe was real. And that message in the line, the witch in the wardrobe, when Aslan came back, Aslan, right, is love itself, right? Aslan is love and strength and forgiveness and joy and happiness and everything good. And you can kill, you can kill Aslan. It's gonna come back. That's the most hopeful, like I live and die on that belief and hope. I hope that that's true, that you can kill, you can try to kill love and it's just gonna come back. And that was the first time I'd really heard that message. What's one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a little kid growing up that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? I could lose myself in fiction and I miss that. If your home caught fire and all living things, animals, kids, spouse, everybody's out safely and you have an opportunity of running in and grabbing one item that matters to you, what's the one thing you would grab? Uh, My laptop which probably everyone says, because on my laptop, I have all my photos. I have my books. I have mostly the photos. If I wasn't, if you said, if you said, what is your answer, but no laptops, no photos, then I would probably do, see, I have all my kids art on the wall behind me. I would probably do one of those. If you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous day and have a long conversation with anyone living or deceased, who would you like to be seated next to? My dad. What would you say to him? I'm sorry. What would he say back? Ooh. Well, I'd like to think he'd say it's okay, but I don't know if that's what he'd say. I hope that's what he'd say. But again, you know, one thing you learn as a chaplain is you just never know what people are going to say. What's the best advice, Dad, or Henry Nowen, or C.S. Lewis, or anybody else that you've done life with ever gave you? So the best advice you've ever received is... It would be from my husband, Alex. It was never like words of advice. It's simply how he goes through the world, which is so different from me. And it's what first attracted me to him and why we're married. And I I tell people all the time and they think I'm being flippant, but I'm actually not. Like I married Alex because he makes me laugh and he's a really good dancer. And those are the two sort of symptoms. They're the two symptoms of what I mean by how he goes through the world, which is to say he has this lightness of being where he sees the absurdity of the world. And my natural state is to be pulled down by some of that absurdity. And his natural state is to find the humor. I've never met anyone quite like him before who can literally find not in a way that's dismissive the other thing I've always loved about him is he's one he's the funniest person I've ever met and he never makes fun of other people it's like incredible but he makes fun of situations right he points out the absurdity of the situation and he points out the humor in it 
Whereas I don't naturally see the humor and I've learned from him. So it's not advice, but it's what I've learned from watching him to find the humor in absurdity. What advice would you offer yourself at age 20? I wouldn't offer myself any advice because I think if I went back and offered myself advice at age 20, I wouldn't have learned what I've learned. And I'm glad I learned it, even if it was hard. Hmm. Carrie Egan, it is sometimes hard. And it has been said that all great chaplains, authors, moms, human beings can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? John, these are really hard questions, man. I, to I told you to grab a big old swig of something. Take a <laughs> sip. Okay. She worked hard at loving people a lot. She took it very seriously and she tried to be as loving as possible. Mary Egan worked very hard at loving people a lot. She took it very seriously and became radically successful in doing exactly that. Oh. I want to thank you for reminding us uh, that through the process of dying, we can learn what it looks like to truly live. Well, thank you. This was a great conversation. I hope we stay friends. We are friends. You, you can't get away from me now. Well, my friends, undoubtedly, you were moved during that conversation that we just shared with Carrie Egan. Hopefully not only moved and encouraged and inspired and motivated, but challenged. Challenged to pick up the phone and make sure someone who knows you love them, that they are loved by you. I think too often we assume or we think they know, or we'll tell them tomorrow, or we'll say we're sorry later on. But tomorrow is not promised, and the conversation with Carrie reminds us of that fact. So today, as this episode comes to its appropriate conclusion, what I'm going to challenge you to do right now is to grab your phone, text a loved one, and let them know how much you love them. Let them know how much you care for them. Let them know that you love them and there's nothing they can do about it, and then tell them why. Not only will it be meaningful for you, but I think it's going to be deeply meaningful for them as well. Well, if you enjoyed this episode as much as I loved bringing it to you and you want to go deeper into the content we talked about today, let me encourage you to check out one of my favorite episodes with truly one of my favorite guys. His name is Antonio Nevis. Antonio poses the question during our conversation, what if the best thing that is going to happen in your life has not happened yet? Isn't that a great question? So hope-filled. It's so ripe with possibility. What if the best thing that is going to happen in your life hasn't yet happened? You can learn more about taking bold actions and embracing change and learning from mistakes and overcoming regret by checking out episode number 418 with my buddy Antonio Nevis. So check it out. You can learn about that anywhere you pulled on your podcast, anywhere you subscribe to your Live Inspired podcast, or by cruising over right now to my website at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast. My friends, I want to thank you, as I always do, for joining us in our Live Inspired podcast family. And I want to remind you that the headwinds we face may be real, but the foundation is indeed firm and the best is yet to come. So for this time and until next time, my name is John O'Leary. Today is your day. What a gift it is. Live inspired. At Kelly Companies, it is no secret that they believe in the power of people. 
In an effort to help their Keelians get to know each other a little bit better, they decided to launch the Who Do You Know campaign. The goal was simple. Keelians were encouraged to have a conversation with someone outside of their circle. That's it. These conversations, however, have brought people together and farthered their world-class culture. Shout out to the Keelians who have made an effort to have meaningful conversations with new friends. You can learn more about those conversations, about those amazing friends, by visiting them online at Keely Company. 